This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, so recently we had Jenny Conrad on and yep. Dr. Conrad was talking about navigating identity as controversy. And you talked a little bit about some of the challenges in your own classroom. Yeah. So when we were first starting that episode, we're talking a lot about, or before the episode, we're talking about political disclosure. We're talking about like Wayne Journal's episode way back in like episode eight. And I told you that I was a little bit uncomfortable with the, after the 2016 election and very uncomfortable with the 2020 election about really getting into the election because of um, really the, I feel like the general discomfort we're all having right now with talking about politics in the classroom. So getting into political disclosure was not something I felt. And obviously there was other issues too. We had a hybrid setting in which I didn't see all my students. And so in terms of establishing a relationship, I didn't feel like I had it. And so I felt really uncomfortable in a, in a place that I had not felt like before. And so I definitely hedged. I definitely pulled back, not only like myself, but also I pulled back covering it in, as, as we usually did. And again, I had limitations for a variety of reasons. But it was very much, uh, I was upset uh, when I was thinking about it. Yeah, that is very upsetting because, of course, I mean, that's, you know, talking about contemporary politics is the reason we often talk about history and past politics and how things got to be the way they are. So it feels like, you know, we're not doing our job. But, you know, I, Dr. Jernell has done incredible research around this and we talk to him and we listen closely to him mm-hmm. and it's still hard. You know what I mean? It's it's not easy. It feels like just someone telling you that you can disclose. And he did more than that. He talked a lot about a lot of things that episode. But you know, it's it's like as time passed, it's easy to kind of get back in front of the class and like lose that confidence about like, can we do this? And like you said, maybe the circumstances just don't even feel like they it would be productive to do mm-hmm. it. And that's that stinks. Yeah. Yeah. It was not my finest, my finest moment in teaching. I do wonder, as you know, a social studies person, I'm curious, like historically, how, how have people felt like this in the past? Of course, like lots of uh, historically marginalized groups in the past probably felt their politics were unwelcome in certain spaces, depending on the type of school they were at, right? Whether it was segregated oh, or integrated. Um, I think of like, you know, when, when, for example, Catholics ran for office, right? I think it was Al Smith in 1928. I, read, I wonder if, if Catholic teachers or Catholic students felt like there was a lot of bigotry in those times. So I'm sure we have lessons in history around this we could investigate at some point too, right? Is that is that always the answer, Michael? Just go study <laughs> to go back. We have to go back. That's my <laughs> uh, my second lost reference. I'm rewatching Lost. I don't know if I told you this. Yeah, I've I've heard it a couple of times, but I'm not one to critique people for bringing up the same thing over and over as we've talked about these episodes. But another way we can learn more about this is to talk about other people who are really working on this problem and doing research in this area. And so we got somebody. Do we have Rebecca Cooper Geller here with us today to talk just about this? We do. Rebecca Cooper Geller, it's very nice to see you. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. 
do you mind telling us or telling the audience a little bit about who you are? Who is Rebecca Cooper Geller? I'm happy to. Um, I'm going to go way back on this. Love it. Um, so my mom, all throughout my childhood, was an academic advisor. So she was on the staff in the College of Education at the University of Washington when I was a kid. She was a single parent. I was an only child. So I spent the time that I wasn't in school, mostly hanging out as a little kid in my mom's office. And the faculty and the staff and the students that she worked with really sort of became my sort of pseudo family. And they really helped raise me. Like I remember sitting with some of her graduate students who were talking about racism in United States schools and, and the legacy of racism in schooling when I was 10 years old. <laughs> they were like, you're sitting over there, come join us at the conversation. So, you know, people like Patricia Espiritu Haligao, who's at the University of Hawaii now, um, Tyrone Howard, who's at UCLA, like, these were the people who really taught me about the world in lots of important ways from the time I was a very, very small child. And so it's not super surprising then that I became a teacher myself. So I taught in Oakland, California at a K-8 school. I started with a second and third grade loop. So I taught the same group of students two consecutive years in second and then third grade. And then discovered that little kids just aren't quite my pedagogical speed. <laughs> so when my school needed a middle school teacher, I jumped at the chance to teach seventh grade world history, eighth grade U.S. history. So I taught middle school for four years. Then I just uh, did my Ph.D. at UCLA with John Rogers and Tyrone Howard. And so I just finished my PhD this last summer, and I am now an assistant professor of secondary social studies education at the University of Wyoming. Wow, that's a good... I've got two connections. My sister is at the University of Wyoming, and my other sister went to the University of Washington. So I'm just going to invite you to our next like family gathering. There you go. And, and you could help spur on conversations about both those Perfect. places. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's really cool that you have experienced both the elementary and the middle school level, because a lot of us in, uh, who are in the colleges of education, you know, we end up teaching classes and we have students who are not going to be teaching the same level that we taught. And mm -hmm. so that, that's probably really good. What did you learn from about those, those, the differences in those grade levels and how teachers approach them? This is not quite what you asked, but I actually learned that there are many similarities in teaching elementary school, middle school undergrads. <laughs> a lot of the time you're, you're having the same kinds of conversations and, and thinking about the same kinds of things. You know, maybe my vocabulary is a little bit different, but it was really important to me when I was teaching elementary that I treat my students like human beings. And part of that, I think for me was that I didn't grow up around a lot of young kids. I didn't have like little cousins. I didn't have I wasn't a babysitter ever, so I didn't really know what a second grader could do. So I just sort of threw the book at them and they rose to the occasion in the same way that here when I started um, at the University of Wyoming, like I just sort of threw the book at my undergrads and I asked them to think about some really difficult, complicated, challenging questions in social studies education. And they just were right there with me the whole time. So I think that for me, it's not necessarily about the differences in the grade levels. It's more about thinking about how, you know, uh, how are we having different kinds of conversations with students that are really still asking young people to really grapple with the difficult questions of like what it means to be a person living in the world today. 
I might, uh, I do have a, a one-year-old and a three-year-old. They also throw books at each other, but I think in, in a much different. <laughs> yeah. No, mine, mine's two. And yep. I, yep. Literal I, book I do, throwing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate your point about the, the similarities. Cause I, th- I, I heard someone say once that, you know, the, the issues that we address in social studies and in schools are really the same from three to 93, right? Like regardless of your age. And sometimes we actually ask questions to young kids that would be incredible for our college students, right? I was looking at the Texas standards. I was doing some fun research on on the standards. I was looking at the ones with technology and one of them once for kindergarten said, what would life be like without technology, right? Without a lot of our modern technologies. I can't remember the exact wording. I was like, what a tremendous question for anyone right? To think, because it really thinks, but they thought, I think that that was the kindergarten question because it's like, because they're just thinking about technologies. They take them for granted. I'm like, adults do too, right? And so I I think that's really wise to see that, that, you know, you can ask the same questions at all grades. And in fact, a lot of those are the best and most worthwhile questions. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. Well, and so the reason we're having you on today is because you have published a new article in Theory and Research in Social Education, which is no easy feat. So congratulations. Thank you. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. So the article is titled Teacher Political Disclosure in Contentious Times of Responsibility to Speak Up or Fair and Balanced. And you have those two phrases in quotes there. Can you tell us about this research project in this paper? Yeah. So this paper came out of my dissertation research. I, in this study, I was looking at how social studies teachers in lots of different kinds of communities around the country were thinking about, in general, discussing controversial issues in the classroom with students. So trying to get a sense of what it means in different local contexts to talk about different kinds of issues. And one of the topics that um, really sort of caught me as I was conducting interviews with teachers was this question about teacher political disclosure. How are we talking about our own politics in the classroom with high school students? And so I interviewed teachers in 2017, 2018, and 2019 in this research. And I really tried to understand both, like, what does this mean in the first couple of months of the Trump administration? What does it mean leading up to and following the congressional midterm elections in 2018? And how does that look in different kinds of places with different kinds of teachers? And so the thing that I think really came out of all of this research is that, Michael, sort of to your point earlier, it's really difficult and there's no simple answer, right? I I think that sometimes it can be easy for us to tell teachers it's important for us to talk about our political beliefs in the classroom because those beliefs are seeping out anyway. Students deserve the opportunity to know who they're learning from, et cetera, et cetera. And also there are real reasons that teachers shy away from doing that. And so part of what I was trying to do with this article was just to sort of complicate these narratives and, and demonstrate that there are lots of reasons that teachers are making decisions to disclose. And there are also lots of reasons that teachers are making decisions not to disclose. And sometimes those decisions are right. And sometimes they're probably not the, the right thing for teachers to be doing in the classroom on both sides. I'm not going to say both sides very often, like in a positive <laughs> way, but that's one of the times. <laughs> Um, so were these the same teachers that you saw each year? Okay. So you saw, and that's really great because 
um, kind of like Michael's saying, right? He's felt changes in his teaching. So, so what did you notice? What is, I guess, the if I'm going to use the social studies uh, historical thinking term, what was the continuity and change among these teachers as you talk to them about their own political disclosure? It's interesting. You know, I was expecting teachers to sort of settle in as the as these interviews took place across these three different years. I thought that there would be sort of um, you know, teachers who maybe initially felt really uncomfortable talking about their political beliefs over the course of those three years might feel a little bit more comfortable opening up. But what I found instead was that um, how teachers talked about disclosing their own beliefs not only shifted and varied across years, but actually shifted and varied within individual interviews. So I think we have this idea that if I am a teacher who discloses, I just disclose. And if I'm a teacher who doesn't, then I never do. But actually, there are lots of examples of teachers who are saying, I would, I would never disclose my beliefs. Like my goal in the classroom, the thing that I do, my special sauce is just being genuinely objective all the time. And two breaths later, the same teacher said, you know, I think that if I'm not telling them how I think through these really complicated issues, then I'm blowing an opportunity, right? That's the same teacher in, in mere moments <laughs> expressing very different ideas about what it is to disclose their political beliefs in the classroom. And so, you know, like I said, I think that we have this idea that it's that teachers just sort of do one thing, but it's far more complicated than that because we're human, right? Like we're, human beings are more complicated than that. And so just like we may say one thing and then do something else in any other area of our lives, it's the same with talking about our political beliefs in the classroom as well. So this was not them having multiple personalities. This is all the, no. the, the same person. All the same um, person. So what, what are some of the examples? Like what, what are, I mean, you, you kind of gave us a few there, but is it, what was it around specific issues? Was it at specific times that, that caused them to be more hesitant or I don't even sure. want to say hesitant or bold because it's the context that probably shaped a lot of these decisions. Absolutely. So the first th teacher that I'm thinking of from the study and all this, all the names that I'm using here are pseudonyms. Um, but the first teacher I'm thinking of is uh, her name was Clarissa. Her name was Clarissa. She's a teacher in Georgia, and she had a lot of undocumented students in her classroom. So she was a white woman. Lots of her students were undocumented. And in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election, she felt it was very important to her to disclose her political beliefs in the classroom, to tell her students, I don't believe in this administration's immigration policies, because she felt that if she didn't do that, she would be violating her students' trust and that they wouldn't be willing to trust her moving forward, right? So sometimes we think about political disclosure as something where I have to build up my students' trust and then it's okay for me to disclose. For her, actually, it was the opposite. She felt that disclosure was a critical component of her ability to build relationships with her students. So there were some teachers like her who sort of felt compelled to reveal their political beliefs sort of as a way of expressing solidarity with particular groups of, of particularly marginalized students in their classrooms. Then you had lots of other teachers who, in, especially those who were in sort of purple bifurcated political spaces who felt really, really on edge about politics all the time. 
So I'm thinking of one teacher, his name is Richard. He was actually in the most conservative district, congressional district of all of the teachers that I interviewed in the study. And he was afraid that bringing up politics too frequently in his classroom could trigger a shooting. He was afraid of gun violence as a result of disclosing his political beliefs in the classroom to the extent that Richard taught economics at the time. And he said that there had been this one video that he'd used routinely over a number of years in the classroom that he felt was really helpful for illustrating a particular economic principle. But one of the interviewees in that video was Elizabeth Warren when she was in her previous capacity as a, as a professor. And just having her present in the video, he felt like was political disclosure in and of itself. And so he stopped using this tool that he felt was the most effective thing that he had to teach his content because he was afraid that it was too revealing of his political beliefs. Then the, the last example that I'll give right now is Ryan. Ryan was in the most liberal congressional district of all of the teachers in the study. But Ryan's school was sort of embroiled in a number of different scandals during the time that I was interviewing him. So this was all sort of kicked off by a social media scandal that was particularly egregious with respect to race and racism. And because of sort of his administration's mishandling of that incident, everybody in the entire community was on edge all the time. And so he felt like he couldn't talk about anything related to race all across the three years of our study because he was afraid that he was going to accidentally step in something that was sort of lingering from this social media scandal. And so he felt like he just couldn't do anything at all. So even though he agreed politically with the community in which he was teaching, he really avoided anything that he felt like could create an opportunity where he would have to disclose his opinion because he thought that doing that was going to create all of these kinds of like um, sort of social dynamics in the classroom that he wasn't going to be able to manage. So you have, a, you know, some teachers who felt like they have to disclose because it's important for me to, to do that, to demonstrate political solidarity with kids. Then you had teachers who were physically afraid of gun violence as a result of disclosure. And then you had others who just felt like because of these other things that were happening in that local context, it was creating an opportunity for really difficult social situations. So there were lots of different reasons that teachers made different decisions about whether or not to reveal their political opinions in the classroom. The complexity of that is fascinating. Thank you for, for, for bringing this up. Like, yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. It's one of yeah, sorry. I, I don't have a question here. I just think it's really because I don't I feel I feel seen a little bit. Yeah, uh, that's, I mean, that's like one of the things that I was thinking about is that, you know, the the challenges that you were describing in the introduction are very consistent with the experiences of teachers everywhere right now. I think that there are very few, even teachers like Clarissa, who felt like I have to say something. I have to communicate that I'm on your side, even teachers like that still really grappled with, it's not a simple thing. And, and it's not necessarily a straightforward decision 
And, and so I, I really want to impress upon you that like, I think everybody's feeling that squeeze. Everybody is feeling it. And, and it's certainly not something that is, is just an easy like switch you can flip and just make everything work. I'm curious about um, the ways that politicians themselves and the media's framings of issues, whether that was something that you that came up in your study or you thought about, because it seems so many of our discussions about what to you know argue about, quote unquote, argue about with each other seems to be framed for us, right? Politicians give these like simple, you're either for this or against this, which is of course how legislation often is passed. Um, and then the media runs with it, but there's also a lot of issues that are controversial, but not politicized in the same way. Did you feel like, and I often like wonder if those are also better ways into discussing politics, right? Like the, the issues that are less politicized, but just as important. Did you feel like the framings from, from national politicians kind of dominated what people feared and what came up in classrooms? I, I would say that the issues, the issues that dominated the political sphere over the last three years, four years, are absolutely the same issues that teachers really struggled with figuring out how to teach appropriately in the classroom. So there were lots of teachers who, you know, for example, said, I have undocumented kids in my class. So I thought it was relevant and appropriate for us to have a discussion about immigration policy. But then in the midst of that discussion, Suddenly, I have students talking about building the wall and saying deeply racist and xenophobic things in the course of that conversation. And so a lot of teachers talked about wanting to have discussions that they felt were relevant. Often that meant circling around topics like immigration, LGBTQ issues, the Muslim ban came up a fair amount, race and racism, especially teachers like to frame their discussions around either Black Lives Matter or around the removal of Confederate monuments. And teachers talked about having these discussions as they were also telling me that there were real increases in the levels of intolerance that students were expressing in the classroom. So they were really sort of trying to juggle the academic component, trying to juggle having students focus on using evidence and drawing on evidence in their discussions, but then they also have students who are being victimized in the course of this discussion. So there were really so many layers to these discussions. I think that in terms of the framing, the thing that came up most frequently was that it was actually the teachers who were posing sort of a for or against very sort of bifurcated, dichotomous framing for students. Frequently, they weren't talking about having discussions. It wasn't a a dialogue in any way. It was a debate where students were going to be pitted against one another and asked to come up with the right answer. And, you know, as we know, in those kinds of conversations, there's not as much learning that's happening because it's more about scoring points so that my side can win. Um, And I think that's what we hear a lot of in public discourse. And it was certainly something that was then being replicated. Um, I will say that, you know, these are discussions that the teachers were describing to me. I, I did interviews with teachers, so I didn't watch any of these things take place. But like, this is how the teachers were telling me they were framing these topics for their students. So, you know, I, I, I do think that a lot of what we see 
on the national scale then got replicated on the more local and classroom level too. Do you remember when we had Genevieve Caffrey on? Was it episode 100? It and was she, 100. Yeah. yeah. And she talked about the, the Let's Act framework. That's something that I, I've thought about a lot about. So this way you're not the whole, and if you want to, we'll put her work in the show notes. But like it was about not your own, how your own thoughts were. You were seeking just a bunch of different opinions on whatever topic that you were covering. And so this way you weren't talking about your opinions, but you were actively seeking out and then talking about these other people's opinions. So this way it would, it, it, you know, it, it might change the tone of the conversation. That's something that I was just, I was thinking about that I actually shared with my colleagues a year ago and I was having some, some struggles. And even with that study, I think a lot about the context there too, right? Because um, I think when um, Genevieve Caffrey came up with that, which she wrote that article with a friend of the pod, like Eric King and my colleague, uh, Dr. Amanda Vickery. And when she came up with that, she came up with it within an, kind of a, a justice-oriented, anti-racist teacher climate within her class, which is, I think, something that some teachers are able to establish and others aren't. And I suspect that would go a lot towards having solidarity with your students and other things, right? Because like, you know, I think in some classrooms, bringing in everyone's opinion can work really well. And I did like that. I think that framework actually is really good. I'm, I'm talking about kind of a broader issue, but other times you bring in viewpoints. And I think one of the more depressing studies I saw recently was from a group of folks out of Michigan State, where they really gave students lots of sources. And one of the, I think they did one discussion on uh, immigration and another one was like on data privacy, like the com tech companies taking your data. And uh, in those two studies, and essentially what they learned is the students ignored the, the evidence, right? Like they got packets of evidence and then they just argued their preconceived opinions once the argument, the discussion part started. And so it's like all of the effort the teachers went to organize packets of, of evidence and sources just kind of went out the window which is what we know happens online too, right? Like, like when we respond to tweets and social media posts and stuff, like a lot of times our preconceived notions and feelings about it just take over. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I would add to that too, is that, you know, we also know that social studies teachers in particular are very socialized to believe that a politically neutral position in the classroom is the correct thing to do, that this is what we do as professionals, is we inhabit a politically neutral, totally unbiased, perfectly objective stance in the classroom. And that's that's the right way to be. But we also know that that's literally humanly not possible for us to enact. And so this is there is a deeply held belief among social studies teachers that this is what we're supposed to do and that any violation of that makes you a bad teacher. And so even as we, I had teachers telling me about the importance of disclosing, they were also really wrestling with the fact that they felt deeply, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. It's what I feel I have to do, but I also know that like this is not what I'm supposed to do. And that was frequently backed up by students who said, you're being unbiased or you, you're being biased parents who pushed back, administrators who said, you cannot talk about this issue. You cannot disclose your political beliefs in the classroom. You have to be neutral. And so there are lots of outside voices telling teachers, you have to be this way, even as they felt personally compelled to share their political beliefs. And even as we have increasing scholarly research that suggests that that's not the right thing to do 
for social studies teachers. So they're, they're, they're really having to push back against a lot. Every time you mention like a teacher being politically neutral, I imagine data from Star Trek in my head, like trying to be a teacher <laughs> because it's like, it's so hard. It's so, you know, the, the myth of objectivity. Once I heard that phrase, I remember when I, I don't know, I was in probably my master's program and, and I read an article about the myth of objectivity. There's no such thing. I was like, oh, of course there's not. Right. But for so many people, they kind of want teachers to do something that's impossible. I mean, I think about my teaching, right? Like if you couldn't, I was the advisor for the environmental club at our school. I was the advisor for like the anti-genocide coalition at our school. And like, kind of, if you just were paying any attention to, you know, Mr. Kretka's room where like everyone gathered to do activist work every day, you probably had a sense but of course, I, I, want, I cared about all of my students, right? Like, I never had a student that I ever, like, had ill feelings. And it's really sad, too, because I taught during the 2008 election to hear a lot of these stories. And had a, I taught AP government during that time in Oklahoma, right? I, I wasn't in some place where I, everyone agreed with me. And just it was the, the best part of, of the election for me because my students were open minded. They listened to each other. We learned together. We asked each other questions and I would go out into the world and, and hear adults being nonsensical. And I actually loved being with my high school students. So I guess my, my question is, what uh, what's some of the hopeful situations that you took out of this? Like, what are the, the good things that you saw happen or the teachers talk about? What or were there those things or are we in? worse place than than we thought. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that a lot of what came out of this particular study is complicated and challenging. I, I also think about a teacher um, in a moderate area, moderate political area in Washington, um, outside of Seattle, who described an instance where she had a student in her class who she knew was transgender and was transitioning. She had another student in the class who routinely expressed real hostility towards anything that challenged traditional gender norms. And there was an incident where that second student made a comment in the course of her lesson. And she sort of realized that she had two options. She could either change the subject or pretend that comment hadn't been articulated in the classroom. She could just sort of let it go and take the path that was easier for her or she could intervene and voice support for her transgender student. But there were only two options, right? Any choice that she made was going to put her in one bucket or the other, that there was no neutral option. There was no way for her to inhabit that sort of ideal objective body because she was a human being and she had two children in her class who were human beings and she needed to figure out how she was going to navigate that. And so for her, I think the thing that, that gives me hope anyway, is that for her in that moment, that illusion of neutrality was gone. It completely disappeared. And she knew that she had to act in ways that supported the marginalized student in her class. And so I think that like one of the things that I really hope teachers and teacher educators take out of this research is the idea that it's far more complicated than we think it is to disclose your political beliefs in the classroom. And it's also easier sometimes. 
right? Sometimes what we have to do is stand with kids who have been oppressed in the world, in our classrooms, in our schools. And, and that's just the thing that we have to do. And if that means that I have disclosed a political belief because one political party is much more willing to stand with transgender youth, then that's maybe not my fault. That's maybe the fault of the political party that's been willing to do that in the first place. And, and that it is more important to provide young people with protection in our classrooms than it is to uphold some sort of inhuman neutrality for the sake of being neutral. I think that there are ways that we can do this that are supportive of all of the young people in our classrooms, including the ones who express intolerance. But to me, it is much more important that we provide young people who are marginalized with that. And if that means disclosure happens, then I think that we need to be okay with that happening because they're kids, right? They're all, they're children and, and they deserve a safe place to learn. And I think power, right? Power exists when, when we have two views in the classroom. Sometimes one side has the power to do harm to the other side. And so I Absolutely. love the way you frame that because I think we have to protect um, and not even always protect, but create a space for, for students who are targeted for hate um, can can know that they're supported in in the, you know, for who they are, right? They don't have to about be about and loved and uh, yeah, and, and I think that that's something that too often gets lost in the context of controversial issue discussions because we get wrapped up in, again, we get wrapped up in the evidence, in the, the texts, in the debate and the back and forth, rather than thinking about the fact that for a lot of the kids in our classes, the issues that we discuss might be relevant, but they might also be issues that have real consequence in their lives and aren't just sort of abstract topics. They may be for a lot of us. They may be for us as teachers, but we have to recognize that it's not as simple as let's talk about immigration because I've got undocumented kids in my class. Like that's a, that's really fraught in ways that maybe teachers aren't necessarily accounting for. So what, what advice coming out of this do you have for, for teachers, for people who are continuing to do research on this topic? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one thing about this study is that it's not particularly prescriptive. Again, like I didn't get to see any of these teachers in action. The thing that I really want teachers to come away with is just a recognition that disclosure is is more than we often think of it, right? We, we think of this as, okay, I'm in the middle of this discussion. I'm going to tell students what I think about this topic, or I'm going to tell students who I voted for. And it's not, that, that's actually not what it is, right? I, I listened to your podcast with Dr. Conrad, and she talked about seepage, right? The idea that we just sort of let our, our, political beliefs out in the classroom, whether we intend to or not, whether we recognize we're doing it or not. I taught um, during the 2012 election and I had eighth graders and we like, we went in on the election. It was so cool. And I remember one student, it was maybe October, asked me who I was voting for. And before I had a chance to answer, another student was like, dude, if you don't know who she's voting for, you have not been listening. And <laughs> I felt a little chastened. I, I remember feeling like I was supposed to be neutral. And I was like, oh, 
have I really been letting it slide that apparently? And of course I had, of course I had, because that's what we do as human beings. And so one thing that I really want to see us do as teachers, as teacher educators, as researchers is to sort of shift how we think about disclosure. We think of it as I'm doing it or I did it or I'm not, but we do it whether we mean to or not everybody discloses in all of the decisions that we make in the classroom, which texts you use, which questions you ask, which questions you answer, how you respond to students, all of that discloses our political beliefs. So instead of thinking, do I disclose? I think we should be thinking about how we disclose in ways that are responsible and thoughtful rather than reactive. A, a huge number of the teachers that I talked to described these incidents happening in their classrooms where they just weren't prepared. So they were operating from this purely reactive place. And I know that my best decisions in the classroom were never decisions that I made strictly out of reaction. And so I, I think that we need to think about how to make disclosure something that we do in a more deliberate way rather than do we or don't we because we do it anyway. The answer is always yes. I think maybe we should make t-shirts then that say disclosure happens. Right? It does. Right? It's like the yeah, um, that's good. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I would well, buy I, one. Yeah, see? I, but I think I think a real point, I actually am a little um I'm I'm finding hope in what you're saying here, which was I I like to have that, you know, along with the realities we're facing. Because I think Michael, if you know in your classroom you show your students that you care about all of them and who they are and you you're willing to defend them and their humanity in your class. That's not, I'm, I'm arguing with you on partisan federal government policy, but it is disclosing, I think, something really important that's political, you know? And so I, I bet that you actually are doing a lot of that work, even if you're not, you know, as comfortable talking about like the, the issues that are on the 6 p.m. news. I really should say the Twitter feed, right? I mean, or on your Facebook feed. Or I also think that we, we often confuse political with partisan, and those aren't necessarily the same thing. And so I, I think that there are forms of political disclosure that don't correspond with partisan positions. And I think that it's the partisan component that is often the piece that scares people the most, both teachers and the people outside of the classroom who are worried about what it is that you're saying in the classroom. Well, thank you, Rebecca Cooper-Geller, for, for chatting with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. So people are going to want to find your stuff online. So could you tell us about the greatest Twitter handle in all of the Twitterverse? How, how do people contact Rebecca Cooper-Geller? I can. So I'll start with my Twitter handle that Dan loves. It is uh, Ms. Coco Puffs. So MS underscore C-O-C-O-P-U-F-F-S, which was a nickname that was given to me by my first class of eighth graders. Love and it. you can also find me, my website is RebeccaCGeller.com. Wonderful. Um, yeah, that's a, I always, I now, since I've heard that nickname, I want to go back in time and have a teacher named Ms. Coco Puffs. It's a fantastic teacher name. And so I assume your, your students uh, really appreciated you as a teacher if they gave you such a great nickname. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We certainly hope to continue the discussion by tweeting you online and checking out your website and reading your TRC article. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning, 
If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, we get it. We do too. We're there waiting for you. Tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also sometimes on Facebook. And if you haven't already, and really, come on, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. Bonus points if you subscribe in all those places. Ooh, everyone likes extra credit. And if you're willing, you could disclose your love for this podcast with a five-star review. We will read it on the air. And we have one right now. Another this one? Another one. I know. It is very sweet. All right. This is from NMFHG5. Very educational. I have gotten the opportunity to listen to many of these podcasts for one of my college courses. Thank you. Helping me become an educator. And I've loved listening to them. I think every episode is, gives great insight on relevant topics and ideas in our educational system today. Not to mention, I love what the hosts bring to the table. That's the sweetest thing. Thank you so that much. Is. This is definitely going on the fridge. This podcast has helped me reflect on some of the big ideas I plan on bringing to the teaching table. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is really nice. And another person that's really nice is Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas. And we would like to thank him for his editing skills. You Zach can find Seitz. me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Krebka. And I'm at 42.50. Until next time, this is the Visions <laughs> of Education podcast. Signing off. Happy birthday, Michael. Yay! We have to go back.